I was reading one weekend this magazine about this visual thinking and visual storytelling. And, I, and at that moment, I made that decision and I went, quit my job. Went and did a course for three hours in Melbourne about visual visualising things. And I started my business the next day. Wow. And now that, Angelique, is is not really me up until that point, right? Until And I think it was because of my sister and watching her battle and she was so courageous. I thought, right, what's the worst that can happen here? It doesn't work? Well, guess what? I'll just go, I'll try and find another job after this if that doesn't work. Welcome to Multiple Hats, a show about STEM professionals who have gone off script and carved their own path beyond the tracks that were set for them. Science, technology, engineering, mathematics, medicine, how they found their why and what it takes to make it happen. I'm Angelique, and on the show today, I talk to the perfect example of Multiple Hats, the very versatile and super talented Sue Pillens, or Dr. Susie Starfish a marine scientist, an artist, the author and illustrated of three environmentally driven children books, and the owner of Picture Your Idea, a graphic recorder and visual artist agency where she can capture the ideas of large crowd in events, workshops or conferences to make the complex simple and the simple compelling. All these in hand-drawn pictures which can transcend culture and language making whichever important message you want to convey, stick with the audience. Since launching Picture Your Ideas eight years ago, Sue has worked with other 60 organizations in Asia-Pacific and published three children books, The Great Bear Thief, who completely sold out, Cranky Frankie, and the next one coming is Roger the Frass and the Itchy Fishes. Heard from Sue on how a life-changing event pushed her to act out of character and take this leap of faith, living a stable career for the unknown and created her own business. And all these from, tell me Sue? From beautiful Rainbow Beach in Queensland. That's fantastic. That sounds like a dream. It pretty much is, I must say. Can you take me back to your roots in STEM? And you had a bachelor and a PhD in marine science. What got you interested in marine biology? Great question. And it would have started when I was a little child. I grew up in regional Queensland and as a family, we're always outside climbing trees, going to the beach, camping. So I've always been really, really interested in nature and, you know, was swimming from a very early age, two or three years of age in the ocean. So that's where it started. Look, this exploring, really enjoying the outdoors. And my dad actually at night times would read us the David Attenborough books and watch David Attenborough documentaries on TV. And so I was brought up with nature and being outside and loving the environment. So that's where the the love and the interest came from, from a very early age. So I think it was just a natural progression to one day become a marine scientist or marine biologist. All right. So love for the environment and then marine biology in such an environment came naturally. And so after your PhD, you moved on to the Department of Agriculture, then to the University of Queensland. And then did science communication at CSIRO, Australian National Research Institute. And if I look for you, LinkedIn, it, it, it all looked like it's weaved through. Can you take us through this early journey, but these roles and how it led you to science communication, which I believe is at the core of what you do now? Yes, that's right. I think where I am today running my own communications business has come from that long journey of having quite a diverse career. 
So after the PhD, I went into the Queensland government where I worked for about eight to nine years and about actually eight different departments. And so I got a lot of experience in terms of strategic planning, management, stakeholder engagement and policy and planning. And so throughout that career, I gained a lot of skills and a lot of interaction with stakeholders and also a lot of interaction with different government agencies. And from there, I then went into the university space where I used my program management skills to look after, you know, science programs, research programs, and then also helped out with science communication for ocean projects for the CSIRO. And so throughout that whole journey, I picked up a lot of different skills. I got to interact with a lot of different people and I got to basically listen to people's stories over that time. And I think that's what's led, plus my PhD, all those skills have led me to a point where I've become a communicator, but I'm a visual communicator using my artistic skills, which I've you know, had since I was a child, but actually haven't actually used greatly in this sort of capacity until running my own small business. Right. So you said you were doing science communication for the ocean projects. Can you tell me more about what exactly you do in science communication in projects like this? So in those sorts of projects, it was quite diverse. It ranged from helping program management for research projects at a a university level. And that was engaging with researchers themselves, engaging with government and trying to translate what was happening in a university space science-wise to policymakers. So obviously with my government background, that I was able to then translate the science into policy speak, let's say. And then another part of my role when I worked for the CSIRO was actually science communication into schools. So I would actually go in as my alter ego, Dr. Susie Starfish, who would dress up as the ocean, but also bring in the science that the CSIRO were doing out in the field, translating that science using art in a classroom setting. So I'd be using all sorts of art and craft and storytelling approaches with the children. And that's the way that I was actually explaining the science. So it was all about science and technology and why we actually look after, manage, and do science on protected species in the ocean. And again, I translated that information into a more sort of approachable science in a classroom setting. Right. So you said that you were an artist. You had those artistic skills from a children age. How does it look like? Did you always paint or draw? Did you have to improve your skills and take course to actually flesh out your communication skills so that you will tell life to people? Or or how, how did it work? Yes. So again, a very interesting and diverse career in terms of art. I've never been to art school. I'm not formally trained in art at all. It's all self-taught. I started, I think from a very young age, I remember drawing a lot and I still have some of the pictures, which I look back and say, they're pretty good for an eight-year-old. So I did, you know, and I used to write little stories about, you know, how to clean up the world and you should put rubbish in the bin and things like this, because obviously was environmentally aware from a young age. Then basically I didn't really do too much art. At well, Once I went to high school, I was encouraged to do, you know, the, the maths and the sciences so that I could get into university and get a good job, which is what you did back then. Mm. And But once I got into my PhD, I really needed an outlet and I found an ad in the local magazine that came around that said there's watercolour classes that were nearby and I went, I'm going to give that a go. Never done watercolour before, turned up once a week for about, five or six years to this watercolor class with these wonderful ladies and a wonderful teacher. And basically, after all the years that I went there, they used to listen to all of my stories about marine science and, you know, I'm tagging sharks and I pull nets and I catch crabs and I tell them all about these marine species. And it was my art teacher 
that actually said to me, why don't you write children's books about, you know, about the science of the oceans and then illustrate them because you, you love watercolour, you love science and you love the ocean. Why don't you combine that all together and write a series of children's books? And so that's where that idea came from. And we can talk about that a bit later, of course. So I did the, the watercolour classes on and off then throughout my career, maybe on a weekend. And then slowly that sort of dissipated because I would have more more work that I have to do in my career. Mm. So when it came to becoming a professional visual artist that I am now running my own small business, I have honed my skills from all of those years of art that I've learned. And then obviously I watch other graphic recorders and other visual artists around the world to see what, what they're doing. And then I adapt that artwork to suit my clients. So it's very much been a learning curve just for me personally. It's my own journey. I gather information wherever I can. And I think that comes again from my scientific background mm. of just learning, you know, absorbing information, finding out what's out there, asking the questions. And then applying that to my communication skills, which just happened to be visually mm. communicated. It's interesting where you said that, you know, you weren't encouraged at high school to use your arts and more mathematics and science, which I think is very typical of classic education. They kind of like take it out of us, the creativity and all this. And anyone mm. that is potentially good at science are really pushed towards science. At least it's really much how it is in France. You know, if you can do mathematics, you're not doing anything else. You're doing mathematics. Yeah, that's exactly what's happened, um, to be honest. And it is, it's a shame. I mean, I think these days they talk a lot about, we have STEM, but there's also STEAM where they put the arts in there. But I think sometimes there's a fine line of what that actually means of how you're incorporating arts, which actually is creative. I think it's creative thinking. It's thinking outside the box. It's letting people have ideas and innovation. So I think that needs to be included more than just saying, oh, here's, let's draw a picture or paint something it's a little bit more than that and it facilitates thinking right because once you see it yes it helps converging diverging and, yes yeah interacting once you see it you get it and that's the power of visual and the visual storytelling that I do that when I'm working with clients that have very complicated stories very complicated let's say data or scientific stories I've been working on for 25 years and then I translate that information and synthesize it into a story for them with using words and pictures and the look on people's faces that will they just look at it and say, that's, that's what I do. You've, you've translated all that and synthesized that information into one picture. You know, I've spent 25 years doing this, but you've made it simple. Even though it was complex, it is actually simplified so that a greater audience can actually digest that information. Yeah. So hang on, let's go a little bit more in this because obviously you design yourself a career portfolio and you've talked through a little bit of how you came to that for your previous experiences. You are the perfect example of multiple hats because you said you're a scientist, you're a visual artist, a facilitator, an author, an illustrator, and we'll definitely go into the authoring later, and a business owner. So you've said a little bit about this art, but can you develop a little bit more? How did you come about diversifying this career altogether and keep all of these bits together? Yeah, good question. I think, to be honest, it, it evolved over a little bit of time. Nothing happened quickly, I didn't just say, okay, my business is going to be X, Y, and Z. That's not how it happened. I just knew that I wanted to do visual storytelling only because, and I probably didn't mention this in my journey, that I only found out about what I do now eight years ago. I didn't know this role existed that you could become a graphic recorder or a visual communicator until I saw an article in a, in a creatives magazine that had a woman, business owner, who drew for a living and she used all these different skills and her active listening skills to draw out people's stories. And so from there I went, well, I'm going to do that. I had no rhyme or reason 
to think that I could run a small business, create a small business, do a small business. I just did it. I'm not sure where that came from, but I did it. And basically from there, I would go from job to job and then I would basically adapt to what each client required in terms of their visual storytelling. And then over time, I decided, well, there's Dr. Susie Starfish and she can actually help communicate the importance of protecting and learning and loving the ocean, which I could then use storytelling in terms of children's books in that capacity and also visit schools in that capacity. Then I had the live graphic recording where I visually capture information and group discussions live. And then the next sort of facet of my work in small business is creating hand-drawn infographics and illustrations for people to basically help make the complex simple and the simple compelling. So that's the statement I like to make about my work. Mm. So there are lots of different aspects to my work. And as you said, I am wearing multiple hats every single day, but they all, you know, have come together to provide this offering of visual services. Okay, lots of rich information then. I want to make a little pose to for you to describe exactly what it is to be a visual artist, because I hear you, you're making information simple and compelling, and you can hear people's story and do that in a picture. But how does it play out? So I see you going to workshop. I've seen picture on your website where you're actually drawing with people speaking. I've seen that you have international work at conferences where you actually draw live. So can you tell me how it plays out in a workshop when you're there with your clients and, and what exactly you do in more like, you know, tangible terms? It, take me through the experience. Okay. I don't think I've ever described that before because it's sort of, it sort of just happens, uh, but I'll talk you through it. So yes, so you go to a, a workshop where there are people that are presenting, then there are also people in groups that will be doing group work, and then they'll be talking back to the group. So I'm there, I've l- looked at the agenda prior to the workshop, so I, I know what it's about, I know the timing of each of the presentations, etc. So I basically have a whiteboard and I put paper on it, I'm hand-drawn, I'm not a digital artist, so I'll just say that, I'm all hand-drawn. Once a pen goes on the paper, that's it. So I have to, you know, I'm always listening. That's a key thing in my role as well. So once the paper's up on the board and I'm listening to the presentations, I'm listening for key messages. I'm listening for repeated messages. I'm also listening to people's voices change. So you may not know, and you probably don't think about it when you're in a workshop situation because you're you're talking about what you're doing and wanting to share your stories. But I'm there to listen to how people's voices go up or if people's voices go down if people get quite emotional. So I'm listening to all of those things. And at the same time, I'm then translating that information into my head into pictures. I'm then synthesizing the messages and the emotional speak, let's say, into words and pictures, and then I put it on the page. So that's all going around in my head all the time, you know, for eight hours of that day, for example. And then once it's on the board, I'm then thinking about the design of the whole story for the day. How's it going to look? How does each theme or each person's presentation may be linking? There might be, you know, repeated words, for example, that I'll put in different colors or the same colors so that when you visually see this story at the end of the day, it makes sense immediately. So when you see it, you get it and you also see yourself in that picture. I think that's really important. And one of the really powerful ways to engage with an audience is the people in that room, you've spent all this time with them. They've, you know, shared their story. I'm the independent in the room who has captured that story visually, put it in front of you, and it's your your story. So I think that's also one of the things I try to achieve as a visual storyteller mm. is to make sure people are put in the picture. There's a big picture that you can see everything that just happened, and when you see it, you get it. So right. 
I'm not sure if that answers your question of how I do it, but it's sort of, it's the first time in my life, I must say, that this comes naturally to me. Like I'm there, I'm listening. I don't, I don't see the audience behind me. I'm, I'm listening to everything and I'm caught up in every single moment of that day to make sure that I capture the story in the room. And so you draw that on, on not live. You're drawing live for you, but then you do it at the end of the day for them. No, no, it's all live. All live. How fast can you draw? Very fast. So it's, it's, and that's, it, it's not an easy job. It's, I'll, I'll let you know by the end of a day or a two day workshop or a conference, I'm quite tired because I've been on the entire time and I'm listening and I don't want to make a mistake, but I also don't want to miss out on any of the important information. So yes. So what I do sometimes, depending on how fast or how furious, you know, the agenda is, like it could be 30 to 45 minute presentations in a day that I, you know, or a half day that I'd need to capture. So I often will sometimes just draw quick little messages in pencil while they're talking. And then as soon as the next presenter comes, or if there's a morning tea break, for example, I get the pens out and I quickly finish coloring that little section. But it really depends if it's fast and furious, I'll just have to pen the work on the page the entire time. So it's in real time and it's trying to keep up with the energy in the room and the agenda and just hope for the best. And obviously at the end of these large days, for half an hour or so, I'm still coloring in the picture, mm. but the overall story will be there in front of people. So when you're a live graphic recording person like myself, it's all done live. If I do infographics for people, that's done separately over many weeks with, you know, over Zoom calls, et cetera. So wow. yeah, there's a bit of a difference. Yeah. So it's pretty full on. Yeah. This is fascinating. And, and then how do your audience engage with you? First thing, how many people usually that you have to capture the idea from? Oh, look, so a workshop can be 50 to 100 people, but a conference, my largest conference was 1,000 people were there. They didn't all speak, obviously, because they have keynote addresses. So you could have, oh, I mean, the biggest, uh, you know, summits that I've been doing it for Griffith University, which will have up to 40 presentations in a day, plus four panel sessions, plus some live discussions. So that's extremely busy mm. and that's probably the most complex when there's that much on the agenda to capture you have to be very quick you have to make sure that you translate and synthesize that information to really key messages because the longer you have obviously with a workshop that may only have 20 people and you've got four things to discuss or four key themes I've got more time to listen and capture more information so it really depends on the agenda to be honest all right and so I have a bit of a hard question there how do you make sure that you don't incorporate your own bias in capturing those ideas? Yeah, that's an excellent question because, as I said, I am the independent in the room. So you want to make people feel comfortable that you're not going to put your own bias in there, that you're not going to add things that they didn't say. So my job is about integrity as well. So it's what I hear is what I draw. I never, ever, ever put anything on the page that I haven't heard. I don't try and interpret what that person said, I use their actual words. And if it's a presentation where there's PowerPoint, I will use the text from the PowerPoint. I don't try and make up the language to suit what I think that person said. I actually draw what that person said. Mm. And then so once you show them the picture, how do they engage with it? What do they say? Oh, well, look, on, it's my favorite time of the day when they see the picture. So it, there's a couple of ways people engage with the picture. First, when I walk into a room, if no one's ever seen a live graphic recorder like myself, which is still the case, really. It's still, some people are quite surprised when they see a woman standing by a whiteboard with some pens and they think, what is she doing here? Is she a cartoonist? What's she going to do? And I'm not a cartoonist. I don't draw people's faces. Mm. I just, I draw the story. And so at the start, they kind of are a bit, some of them are a bit wary. They kind of wonder what she's up to. But then slowly throughout the day, they're noting that what's being said 
is what's actually being pictured right in front of them. And so they get really excited. And then in the break, the idea is for the visual story to be owned by the group. So they come in, they have a look, they'll talk to me, they'll talk to each other. You can see them pointing and saying, oh, yeah, remember when, you know, that speaker said this, this is what we should be doing or remember that. And so then they take photos, things like that. But by the end of the day, it is a very group situation where everyone comes in, takes photos and video. People have photos with it. They put it on social media. It causes quite a stir, to be honest, but in a good way. And some people think, oh, it's a bit of a distraction to have you in the room. But really, once people realize what I'm doing, there's plenty of opportunities in a workshop or a conference situation where you can come up at your own leisure and have a look at the drawing. You don't have to talk to me if you don't want to, but I, I do love a bit of a chat. And yeah, it's a really great way to engage, but also to reinforce what's being said throughout the day so people remember. And then after the fact, they'll remember through the story rather than being sent, you know, a bunch of dot points mm. or a huge, a huge report, for example. If you send the picture first, it grabs people's attention and then they can look at the detail behind that in the report. So yeah, it's a great way to engage, I must say. Oh yeah, yeah, it sounds really good. And uh, I've never seen it happening live, so I'm very fascinated by all you, what oh, you're saying. Oh, you have to come along. Yes. I'd love to at some point. And then in the spirit of designing your own career and building your own narrative, you say in Australia you're in beautiful Rainbow Beach in Queensland and then you work across Australia but also abroad and think about your international conferences, you know, Manila in the Philippines, Danang in Vietnam. I mean, your job description is almost bound to idyllic location. Is that by design or <laughs> cherry on the cake? <laughs> no, look, it's a cherry on the cake for sure. I think in terms of international work, pictures obviously transcend across languages. So the work that I've done in Southeast Asian regions, a lot of the conferences, yes, it was spoken in English, but there were a lot of obviously Asian delegates who would come up to me during those conferences and tap me and say, in, in a small amount of English, look, I don't, I don't speak English, but I understand what you've drawn for us. So that was very empowering to have diverse groups of people still be engaged, even though English wasn't the main language of everybody. So I think in terms of idyllic situations, yes, I think words and pictures can be used across the world yeah. in any form, in any format at all. You can draw anywhere. So that's been wonderful. Yeah, that's actually a very good point you, you made. You know, if they don't speak English, but they send still follow everything mm -hmm. for the picture. So Correct. very inclusive in the end. Accessible and inclusive, which I think is really important these days if you want to share your stories. And everybody has a story. Yeah. So why not share it so that everyone can access it? But I also like that you've been able to reconcile places that you make you energized because you talked about, you know, how you've grown in the environment. So, you know, you might have like struggled in being in a tarmac city like London or something like this. And thinking about Rainbow Beach is a very small town. So, you know, people might have been discouraging on saying, well, you can't really have a career in such location. But in somehow you reconcile all this and you found work that matter in place that's where you can be energized. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I actually probably never even thought about it like that before, that that I can, I move around a lot. So my work in Rainbow Beach at the moment is all about getting illustration inspiration, which I get from being outdoors at the beach. And when I'm doing my children's books, this is where I come to get that inspiration. The rest of the time, you know, I'm in Brisbane, mm. I'm in capital cities, I'm, I'm traveling. But you're right, this sort of work I can do from anywhere. So it's just happened. I think COVID, I think, you know, the pandemic yeah. has, you know, really helped shift where you can work. And so I moved between mostly Brisbane and Rainbow Beach for my work, depending on, you know, what inspiration or illustration work I have on. So that's, I'm very lucky, but I also think I've made that luck in terms of 
making sure that I can work remotely, that I'm always there for my clients and that I can move around and be where they want me to be when they need me to be there. So yeah, I'm very lucky, I think. And that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I love that. All right. So let's go back to starting self-employment. So you launched Picture Your Idea, your business about science, communications and visualization about a year ago, you said. Yes, eight. Yep. And so we now understand how you've done that with a little bit of a patchwork of all your experiences, but also kind of coming back to your initial talent that had been a bit suppressed and that suddenly <laughs> came into place with your science education. How long did you kind of brew this idea before you actually took the leap of saying, okay, I'm going to be self-employed rather than finding science communication job here and there? Look, I think... I never in my whole life thought that I would run a small business. It's not, it was never something that I thought, oh, let's be self-employed. My personality type is I write lists all day, every day. I'm usually until this point, until I started a small business, I was risk averse. So I was very security conscious in terms of having a government job or a university job where I felt I was secure. I'd have, you know, holiday pay, sick leave, superannuation, all of those sorts of things, you know, yeah. you're very secure in your roles as you're going through your career. There was a number of things that led to me starting a small business. So one was, wasn't really happy in, in my work after a number of years and sort of was feeling a bit, well, there's got to be something else out there. I'm not really sure. And then unfortunately, my younger sister was diagnosed with cancer oh, I'm sorry. around Christmas time. Then though, in three, three months after diagnosis, she died. So she died after her 35th birthday or two weeks after her birthday. And that devastated myself and my family, obviously watching this young, active person fight for her life. And she lost that battle. And from that moment, it changed my entire life. And I decided, right. So I stuck my job out a little bit longer. Then I went, no, life is too short for me to come to work each day and not be happy in the work that I'm doing. So I actually took a, a package that the government was giving out at the time. So I left having a little bit of security there because I, I got some funds from that. So then I went into the university system. I also worked there for a while. And again, I just found that I, I wasn't in a happy place in terms of the work and it was a little bit of a, a different working environment. So as I mentioned before, I was reading one weekend this magazine about this visual thinking and visual storytelling. And, I, and at that moment, I made that decision and I went, quit my job, went and did a course for three hours in Melbourne about visual visualising things and I started my, my business the next day. Wow. And now that, Angelique, is, is not really me up until that point, right? Until, and I think it was because of my sister and watching her battle and she was so courageous, I thought, right, what's the worst that can happen to you? It doesn't work? Well, guess what? I'll just go, I'll try and find another job after this if that doesn't work. But mm. I believe strongly that things happen for a reason and I've used her strength to, to be honest, to each day and even today after she's been gone now for 10 years, I still utilise her strength and her courage to take risks, to try and do the best that I can. And also I love my job mm. and, I, I, you know, I do think that's because of her, but it's also because I've spent 20 years building this career and I think that's why now it's come naturally to me that I was supposed to do this. Mm. You know, you get, I got into my 40s and I run this small business, I'm self-employed. I feel very secure now after eight years, but running a small business is full of risk. It is full of failure and I just have to adapt where I can and believe in myself. And I think, you know, that takes your whole life sometimes to get to a point where you make these big decisions mm. and then I've been able to, you know, 
add, diversify what I do and provide an offering that people want at the moment. And hopefully it continues, but you know, small business and being self-employed is not easy, but I'm learning every single day and just trying to to make the most of it Yeah, and yeah, offer a a really good service. Yeah. That's such an inspiring story. And you've said quite a few very important things. First thing, I'm, I'm very sorry for your sister and I'm glad that you yeah. could find something positive out of it because it's a yeah. tragic Thank story. You. It is, yeah. Mm. The first thing that you said that I thought is worth really noting is that you say you took some government package at that point and that allowed mm-hmm. you to pause. Sometimes if we are just in the treadmill, we can't pause and think about what we can mm. do. And so in your mm. case, apply one, there was a strong, trigger a life realization that life's too mm-hmm. short and that we can't dispense it for no good yes. reason and this enablement to just 11 having like i don't know what it was two months three months that it enabled you to just yes. take a break and think what am i where am i what do i want that's absolutely it and how you described it then those two you know the life trigger and then the financial safety for a short time enabled you to do that so i think it, it's quite a fantastic illustration of what can happen where we enable and empower people and give them a little bit of resource and time. That's it. Yes, because life is so busy. Things just keep happening and you don't, you are on that treadmill. Um, yeah, and it was, if it wasn't for that life trigger and my sister's loss, I think I would still be in the exact same position probably. So it's, so I do, I'm thankful for the opportunity, but also like I take my sister with me every day in this journey. Mm. I'd hope she'd be so proud. Yeah. I mean, you're doing amazing. So I'm sure she would be really proud. (laughs) You said something about um, what what is the worst that can happen? And and that really something that I really like because I was reading a sentence from Guy Raz who does podcast about entrepreneurship and he makes this distinction about scary versus dangerous. What is actually Mm. scary? but not dangerous and what is dangerous and scary Mm. or not scary. And this is what you said, right? You were someone who had a lot of risk mitigation and you grew up jumped. It wasn't your your personality at that point, but then you realize what is the worst that can happen? Yeah, absolutely. And and particularly business, you're taking a huge leap. If you're going to start your own business, create and run your own business, Mm. it's, it's a risk every single day because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Whereas when you're on a contract somewhere or you get paid every fortnight in a, in a, in a normal nine to five job, you know, you're going to get your pay every two weeks pretty much. Yeah. I don't have that. I don't have that, but I've had to, that's business. That's what a business is. So you have to take that risk on. And I think there's risk and there's also reward when it comes to running your own small business. The risks, yes, there's, there's lots of them and you can mitigate against them. You can manage them. And you also have to accept that's your life. I don't know when the next job's coming. My job, my, you know, the work for me comes in waves. When it happens, it happens and it happens a lot. And then, you know, there might be a quieter period, but then there's always something to do to run the business. Mm. On the other hand, there's the rewards and that's, you know, being your own boss, doing something different every day, loving what you do every day or most days, by the way, Mm. some business stuff can be a bit annoying, but it's being able to go to the beach when I need to, to get some inspiration, which people might think isn't a job, but it is. For someone like myself, I need to get beach inspiration. Mm. So, yes, I really like that when you said scary versus dangerous. That's important for people to to know and accept. If tomorrow it doesn't mm. work anymore, you can take contract work, whatever whatever yep. works. Adaptable and flexible is the other thing that in small business. You just have to keep adapting, yeah. changing. The market will let you know if it doesn't you know, want your service anymore or all that type of service. So then you have to learn to change with it. And what does it take to start a visual communication business, you know, drawing gear and that's it? Or is it is there more to it? 
Oh, look, I think, I think firstly, you obviously have to have a skill set. I don't think anyone can just, even if you can draw, I don't think you could just become a visual storyteller. I think you need to, you know, go to some workshops, you know, learn about it. I don't think you can just start it. I, I did do a little bit of learning before I started, but in terms of infrastructure and logistics, yes, it's, I have lots and lots of pens and by lots, I mean lots. Mm. When I was younger, I wanted to own a stationery store. So if I go to Officeworks or the Art Shed or some sort of crafty, arty, you know, shop, I'm there for like a day. So there's lots of artistic gear, but I also have technical gear with computers and light boxes and there's all sorts of things that, that I require and I've evolved my drawing over time. So I, I haven't gone to the computer digital age. I just don't not something that I like to do. Yeah. I prefer the the feel of pen and paper. And so that's where, you know, my business expense goes to is pens and paper and paints. Yeah. So to start a business like that, let's say a couple of thousand dollars and you set up and obviously the skill set. Yes. Yeah. So you don't need a business known to start it. No. And I, you work from your home office, you travel and then obviously word of mouth and then promoting yourself. So with a small business, obviously we wear Many multiple hats at your wonderful podcast name, which I, as I mentioned the other day, I didn't realize that's what I do, but that's what I do. You know, so I'm, I'm the creative director of my own small business, but I'm also the CFO, the CEO, the CISO, mm. the, you know, the, the chief operating officer, the promotion and marketing person, the social media person. I'm all of those things all at once every day. So it's just a matter of managing it all and knowing that there's a lot to do when you're not actually doing the drawing work itself. And I think that was something that I had to learn. No one, I didn't go to business school. I don't know anything about running a business. It was all, again, self-taught. Mm. But I learned every day and I learn every day. Every, every day, I'll, you know, something will happen in my business. I'll like, oh, there's a learning. But so tell me, how did you get your first client? My very first client, that's a really, that's a great story. I just started my business, like literally, I just went, okay, today, picture ideas. I'm starting the business, Dr. Susie Starfish. She's going to do some ocean science education. And then I think a couple of weeks later, I received an email from a colleague at the CSIRO who knew that I did art on the side. She knew I was a marine scientist and she'd just been to a really big conference in Canada, a big fisheries conference. And there was a live graphic recorder there who just happens to be like my favorite now that I know about graphic recording. He's one of my favorite visual artists. And so she saw this for a couple of days in Canada, came back to Australia and went, you know what? We should, we should have that at the CSIRO. So she contacts me out of the blue and said, I don't know if you've heard of this graphic recording, but I would like to know if you would be interested in being engaged to come to some of our workshops in the Torres Strait to help draw out some of the really complex fishery science for the lobster fishery up there. And I just went, I just looked at this email, having just started my business and just went, I've got goosebumps even thinking about it, to be honest. I remember that exact moment. And I, I emailed her back and I said, you won't believe this. I've just started my own small business being a graphic recorder. And yes, I cannot wait to do this with you. And that's my very first job in Torres Strait, helping Indigenous fishers. I'm drawing out the, the science of their fishery for the lobster fishery. And from that moment onward, I've had work every single you know, year from job to job to job. So hang on, you decide that. I'm going to be, I'm going to start picture your idea. But before mm -hmm. you even advertise it in any way, mm -hmm. you get someone yes. that thought about you, who are so some yes. graphic designer, and they think about you. Like, yes, it was unbelievable. Yes, and she's like a woman of STEM and she's, you know, very supportive of women using creative thinking and, you know, the art side of it. And so because she'd seen it in real life in Canada, she just thought of me. Like it was 
uncanny really to think about it now. That's, and that's how it started. And from that moment, I was able to then promote the work that I'd done there. And then the jobs just came from there. So yeah, so that, that was your first portfolio building. Yes. And then yes. word of mouth or do you do advertising? Yes. So that was a word of mouth to start with. And then I learned, I didn't know anything about social media at that stage. I know gasp for people, mm-hmm. but I'm on social media a lot now. I love it because visuals really are a way to draw attention to the work that you do. And it's a little bit different in the scroll. You know, people, you know, there's things going on, lots of busyness and data. But then when you see pictures, people, it stops, people stop the scroll like, oh, what's this? Yeah, that's different. Absolutely. And so, yeah, so at the moment, it's still word of mouth. When I do a job, someone else might tell their colleague, oh, did you get a graphic recorder for your next workshop? And then it's social media through LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram, et cetera, of, yeah, just showcasing other people's stories. But this is how I did it. Wow. So first client came from... Pure star alignment, which I love. Eh? <laughs> then you've got your portfolio, and then you don't you, you just showcase on LinkedIn, Twitter, but you don't need to do Google Ads or no, I, no, I haven't had to. I have a website, which is when someone says, "What do you do?" I go, "That's my business card." Let's say you go to my website, my portfolio, my visual portfolio was on there. You can see examples of all of the different organisations I work with, all the different types of visual storytelling that I do, my picture books for children, and then the YouTube channel for more of the videos and face-to-face, you know, visual storytelling that I do. So that's how I've done my visual storytelling business because obviously as visuals, I mm. want people to see it. So it's all very important for me to get that out there so people can see see it and get it. Yeah, but eight years without having to do any marketing beyond showcasing your portfolio, mm. I think is amazing work. So you, yeah. you must really give up a big impression. Um, <laughs> I love color and I love yeah making a statement with the color for people. So that could probably draws people's attention. Yeah. And I also think I do offer a different and unique skill set because I am a trained scientist, so I can interpret and synthesize information very quickly. Mm, yeah. And the what I give to people, the visual story is is always the clients have always been very happy. So I think that in itself is a way to market yourself. So we know how you find your first client, how you're growing your customer base, which is an amazing story. But when you started, was it self-sustainable from the beginning where you were able to, you know, build this income that you needed compared to your previous job, let's say, in a few months or how long did it took before you actually were financially stable? So taking that leap into being self-employed and running a small business, the answer, would it be financially sustainable? No, definitely not. I was lucky and fortunate that my husband had a full-time secure-ish job when I did it. So that's one of the big reasons I would say is that I had my family's support to, my husband's support to take this leap. He just wanted me to be happy. He could see I was unhappy for a number of years in the work that I was doing. And so he said, just do it. And again, what's the worst that can happen? It were the words that we said. Again, if you, this fails, then, you know, apply for some other jobs. And I had a skill set and an experience and a background that said I was hopeful that I could get another job if I needed to. Mm. And then it would have taken several years, up to five years before I feel secure that I can, you know, pay my way and pay the bills and all of those things. So it takes a long time because I'm, you know, a sole trader. It's just me. I don't have staff. I don't sell a lot of product. It's really time with clients and face-to-face drawings as well. So it takes a, a lot of time. And also something for people that are creatives is that it takes a lot of time to do what I do as well. It's not just you go somewhere, have a meeting and you leave yeah. again. It's a lot of preparation work, a lot of planning work. The drawings themselves, depending on how complicated they are, for example, infographics, that can take months to do really complicated visual stories with organisations. I have some large contracts with government 
and they can take six to 12 months to be, you know, to be doing those sorts of drawings for people because they have to go through a, a rigorous process. Mm. But so, yeah, in terms of financial leaps of faith, that's something that I did think of. And as I said, I was before that, I was very risk averse. I'm like, well, how am I going to pay for everything? And I was lucky enough, as I said, my husband was able to look after the bills for the first few years. So yeah, it is a big risk and it's not something to take lightly because not everyone has that opportunity. So I was very, very lucky. And did you have access to any funding for founders or traders? I had nothing. Nothing. I did it all myself and that's what I've continued to do. Um, If someone at the very beginning of your journey would have told you, oh, they are this grant available, do you think you would have applied? Yeah, I might have. Yeah, depending on what it was. I, I don't fit into a box though. I think that was also, I think people probably did mention it to me, but because I'm an artist, I'm a scientist, I'm mm. a, all these, you know, I don't fit into any of the boxes, to be honest. I think mm. things are changing slowly in the world, but you either go for an arts grant, you go for science grants, or you go for community grants. Mm. And so I could have, I could have, you know, applied for, for one of those, but I think I just didn't, I didn't have the time and I also didn't think I fitted into those boxes. Okay, I see. And how did you define your pricing? Because you mentioned uh-huh. all the time that it takes. And, you know, for someone who want to start a new service, it, it's mm. a little bit hard, especially in a space. Like I imagine there weren't many people giving the same service. That's true. Yep. When I started, there wasn't that many. There are now. That's a really good question. Look, I had no idea what I was doing, to be very honest. I just, I think I spoke to I had a couple of mentors from government from around Australia that I'd worked with. And so I think I, from memory, I spoke to them about, you know, what's a reasonable price? If you were to engage someone like myself to come in and draw out your workshop, what would you pay? And so that's how I started the pricing was based on their advice. Mm. I then, once, once I had a bit more confidence and I was getting a lot more work, I kept the price the same for the first couple of years. And then I started to increase it because my, my drawings were getting better. The business was you're growing and I was spending more time then on more complicated drawings, which took a lot more time. And so I started increasing my pricing and also telling my clients what you're going to be getting for the money. Mm. So this is not just some quick sketch that you're going to get. I'm taking a lot of time with you and your clients or customer base to make sure that we're creating your visual for your company or your organization that's going to make a difference or it's going to provide information for your customer base or client base, et cetera. So it's, it's really quite a time-consuming thing. So time is money. However, as I quickly mentioned at the start of our conversation, that the market also tells you if you're too expensive or they don't want to pay for that service. So I believe in my service. I value my service. And I think as a creative and in the arts area, Art isn't considered a real job, but it is. But it is. And yeah. we provide, yeah, we can provide so much more to a story than just bullet points or PowerPoint or a report. We really put the time and effort in and think outside the box. And so I think valuing yourself, valuing your offering is, is the most important thing that you could do in business. Because if you don't value yourself and your services, then why would somebody else? Yeah, that's a very good point. And your work is all about impact. Uh, it's about it is not having anyone forget anything that has been said and have this message stick with them, which is the entire purpose of a workshop. So it's, that's exactly right. So yeah, yep. awesome. Yeah. Now let's go to publishing books. So first, <laughs> first, you said you now published two books already, and one is currently being illustrating. So yes, the Great Birth Eve, Cranky Frankie. And the last one is Roger the Rass and the Itchy Fishes. 
And so can you tell us more about these and the message that you're trying to seed into children? Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, one of my most favourite things to do is to write and illustrate children's picture books. Um, by the end of this year, there'll be three um, books that people can actually hold in their hands. All of them are about the environment and learning about the environment, learning about the oceans, what lives under the ocean, how things interact in the ocean. And because I believe that if you learn about something, then you might tend to fall in love with it. So then you'll look after it. So that's the message behind all of my books really is that I'm providing environmental education in a kid-friendly way. I use science as the basis for each of the books always. And the first book, The Great Barrier Thief, illustrates the impacts of climate change on the Great Barrier Reef, which climate change and coral bleaching science is quite complicated, but I managed to you know, create a book that had a hopeful ending, which is really important when you're talking about a big issue, a big scary issue like climate change. The second book in the series is Cranky Frankie and the Oceans of Trash, which is all about illustrating the impacts of marine debris and plastic pollution in our oceans and the consequences that it has for the sea life. Again, ending in a hopeful solution for marine debris that I hope children, you know, can learn from. And then the third book, which I'm actually illustrating this very moment, once I finish speaking with your lovely self, is Roger the Rass and the Itchy Fishes, which is all about diversity on the Great Barrier Reef. It's all about cleaning stations and how small little animals on the reef can achieve great big things. So it doesn't matter how small you are, you can make a big difference in the world. And so that's the sort of the theme of, of that last book there. So it's a great joy to create and the best part of that sort of whole process, it can take two or three years to create a book, is to have the book in your hand and read it to children and just watch their eyes light up as they, you know, they see different things or different animals in the picture or they they understand what's actually happening in the world and then they, you know, find out ways of, oh, we need to put our rubbish in the bin, mummy. Did you know that? You know, a turtle could swallow that. Oh, and that's become very, so good. Yeah, yeah, they become very, very sick. So they, they're learning from these books, I hope, you know, key messages, and then they tell their parents. So that's my way of, of trying to communicate to a, a large audience is that you try and, you know, take the children on a story that's hopeful and fun and different and colourful. And then the people that read those stories to the children also will then hopefully also learn because they're a little bit older mm -hmm. usually because they're the ones that buy the book. So that's my way of, you know, providing science communication in a colourful, hopeful and positive way. And also the parents who read that, then they don't want to disappoint their children, right? I think that's exactly right. Yes, we will put that rubbish in the bin. Save the turtles. Of course, my darling, we will do that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really good. Oh, that's awesome. So you said it takes... Two to three years from ideation to publishing? That's correct. Yes. Yeah, that's a long time. It is. And and how did you go about publishing? Because many authors end up self-publishing because it can be so hard to get a publisher. But your books are published by existing publisher and two different ones. Can you tell me more about that that process? Absolutely. And yes, the publishing of children's picture books is a very, I think, a challenging and difficult and very competitive process. So my very first book, The Great Barrier Thief, it took me about six years to write because I didn't have a hopeful ending because, you know, it's climate change. It's a bit oh, yeah. daunting. So it took me that long to make sure that the text for the book would be accepted by people. And, it, and in the end, it was. However, I wasn't able to get it published by any big publishers. And that's just publishing in itself. So I found what's called a partner publisher and they were in Sydney. And basically what happens is you actually put up the money. So I had to finance. So that's the biggest, actually, when we talked about finance before, mm. the biggest expense I've ever had is financing my first children's picture book. Okay. So I had to put up the money for that. 
they then have a publishing company which will then take the story and the pictures and they publish that for you. So they go through an editing process, they get graphic design, they get, you know, they get the book printed somewhere and then sent back to Australia and then they promote it with you. And so I had to put the funds in. They did all that for me because I really wanted to own the copyright of my first book. I thought it was a really important book, yeah. an important story. I did all the, the writing and the illustrations. So that was my book. And that's what happened. And it was extremely successful. It sold out. There was none left. Mm, I've got my, my copy. So. Yeah, you've got a copy. It's so wonderful. Yeah. And so, yeah, from that book, I had lots of other stories that I wanted to do. And so then I sent one of my manuscripts, which was Cranky Frank in the Oceans of Trash, into there's sometimes a call for Australian publishers. I'll put a call out, okay send us your manuscripts, we'll have a look, we'll get back to you. And I was lucky enough, I received an email one day from this publisher in Armadale, Little Pink Dog Books, and they said, oh, we love Cranky Frankie and the Oceans of Trash, we'd love to publish this. They also then said, we would like to offer you a two-book deal. Any other book that you would like to publish, you let us know. And I went, oh my goodness, I'm so excited, this never happens. Right, so I spent, you know, I spent six years of being rejected and then finally this happened. It was such an amazing moment. And the third thing that happened that was even more exciting is we would also like to republish The Great Barrier Thief. Oh, because it was out of, it was out of publication. I was like, oh my goodness, yes. So they've got three books. They've got the three book, they've republished The Great Barrier Thief, which is now available. The Cranky Frankie, which is available. And now it'll be Roger the Rass and the Itchy Fishes, which will be out later this year. And so it was a very, yeah, it, publishing any sort of books, I'm sure, is difficult. But children's books, it's very competitive. It's it's a long process. And I was just extremely lucky and fortunate again that my stories, and because they were environmental stories, they wanted to have some of these stories in their catalogue. So that's that's my publishing journey. It's very exciting. Yeah, so it's your, your niche, your only very special yes. niche that makes you so yes, special. Yes, my niche. Mm-hmm. I finally found my niche. <laughs> But it's that, it's like, you know, you look back into your inner self, right? The beach, the environment, the marine biology, yes. what you grew up with, your artistic talent, and it all come into place at some point. It's like, yeah. here's the mirror, here's who I am. <laughs> yeah, wow. I never even thought of that. You're bringing up a lot of like self-reflection that I've never even thought of today. So yes, oh, you're right. I love it. And this is what I love about the stories is suddenly you can see how those incoherent puzzle makes all sense and, and I think it's really mm. important because when we look at LinkedIn or resume we all make it look like very linear or very yes. you know but it's not life is messy life is a roller coaster there is no up and down left right it's all a swirl so oh, you're absolutely right yes yeah I never again thought of it like that you're right I've gone up and down and around and around fallen over got back up and here we are and here we yes. are so you said about the most expensive was like to get the money for the book because you had to kind of mm-hmm. put the funds is that okay to have like a, a range for someone to understand what children book is actually costing to publish? I would say just under $10,000, I think it was, to be honest. And you, you'd be lucky to get that back in sales. Right. That was my next question. Because we imagine, you know, mm. all the bestsellers are lucrative and different, mm-hmm. and, but for smaller mm-hmm. niche. If I sell my own books, I can get some of the, yeah, some of the money back. Under contract, you'll get 5% of recommended retail price back on a book. So I was able to gather most of my money back from my very first book because I owned it. So anything I sold, I got back. When you're on a contract, it's very different. There's royalties. Right. On your second deal, it's 5% back on sales. On your recommended retail plus an upfront advance. Yes. So wow. you don't, I'll, I'll say, you don't write children's picture books to make money unless you're pumping out books every single year and maybe selling tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of books. It's a very 
competitive market and it's something you do out of love unless you're doing it full-time. That's why it's only one of my streams of work that I offer. I wouldn't do it full-time because it takes just so long with little little financial reward and I need, at, at my stage in my career and my business, I need to have funds coming in to pay bills. So Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's just it's just a reality check for some people to think it sounds good, but you're going to have to do something else as well to, yeah. to pay the bills yeah. until you get to be a superstar. So. Reality check. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah. And so... How do you split your time and manage priority between all those different businesses mm. and stream? Define boundaries and avoid burnout. I don't have that quick answer to that. I'm a work in progress. I have to balance running the business and being the business. And I think looking after myself, I've realized after eight years, is key. If I'm healthy, then my business will be healthy and I'll be able to deal with things better and meet all the, you know, the busyness and, and the timeframes, the strict timeframes for projects. So it's a learning curve. And when I think I've learned it all, you know, something else will happen and you go, oh, okay, I need to readjust there and adapt to that and learn from it. And I just think it's small business is just constantly reevaluating, adjusting, and just keep on believing in what you're doing. If you stop believing what you're doing and it all becomes too hard, I think that's when mm. it's time for a break again, as we mentioned before, that taking that time out. And I make sure that I have breaks. Yeah. I make sure I go for walks. I go outside. I listen to music. I read books. I, I have to take that break because being a creative is also, you can't just switch on being creative. I can't just say, okay, at 10.35, I'm going to be creative for the next four hours. That's not really how it works. So I'm constantly thinking about projects all the time in my head. I sleep with projects in my head. I see images. I've got ideas. Like particularly when I'm vacuuming, I get the best ideas when I'm vacuuming. Like that's just awesome. My brain's on a different planet and I go, oh, there's an idea. And I run and I quickly scribble something down and draw something. That's how some of my picture book ideas have come up from my children's book. So you can't slot your time because as you say, it's not... 10.30 creativity. Yeah, look, I'm in a slot in meetings, obviously. And if I'm drawing, then I say, well, that day is put aside. Like I have to just shut off. I'm in the studio. I'm not looking at the emails. I'm not taking calls. Right. I have to just leave a whole day either to paint or to draw. You can't have distractions. Because I'm hand-drawn, it's, you know, I have to keep redoing things in my situation. So I just have to calm, be calm, be creative, have a nice safe space to work in where there's nice music, good light you know, and that's just my process as a creative. It's not everybody's process, mm. but particularly when you're painting, the temperature I take into consideration, you know, each page of a picture book has to look similar. Your paints have to be put on similar times. And so there's a lot that goes into being a creative that's may not sound creative, but it's part of your process. Right. Very interesting. Now tell me a little bit, reflecting on your journey, what do you think was more privileged that enabled you and Hard work, perhaps? That's a very good question. I think the privilege, it was a factor in me starting my small business in terms of I wanted to do something different, take a leap of faith, run a small business. I wouldn't have been able to do that if my husband hadn't supported me and then supported us for a couple of years. So that's the privilege part. I'm thankful every day for that because I can't do everything myself all the time. So I do lean on my husband for support. But I think hard work is really, if someone says, What's, what do you do in your business? Well, you do the business, you run the business, you are the business, but it's the hard work behind it, behind the scenes, I think. That's really important to put in the planning, to be prepared and have the patience to do it all and then know that, you know, this is all 
part of what you love and then to give yourself a bit of a break, don't be too hard on yourself, even though you do have to work pretty much every day on the business all the time. Give yourself breaks, believe in yourself and just keep keep doing it as you love it. If you don't love it anymore, then that's the time to look at something else. Mm. So I think, yeah, a bit of privilege there, but a lot of hard work. Well, very well done. What an amazing story you've shared of finding yourself and making it matter. That was Sue Pilens, the owner of Picture You Idea, or Dr. Susie Starfish, the author of three hand-drawn watercolor children books. So much to take away from Sue's story with one of the most powerful messages that one can learn. Life is too short to come to work each day and not be happy in the work that we do. It may sound cliche, but life can remind you of this at any single time and probably the hard way. The thing is, it can be really hard to figure out what is the work that matters to you and where this patchwork of your life finally converge into a coherent picture of you, if that even means anything. Sue had always had artistic talents, but she never truly nourished this talent. But then, her love for the ocean, nurture from childhood, was deepened by her in-depth knowledge of marine science. She practiced her talent for six years, sharpening a pen and toolbox with watercolors. She picked up professional skills through her first 10-ish year of employment, all of which she was finally able to combine in becoming a visual artist, capturing the science and the idea of scientific conferences or projects. It now all makes sense, but she couldn't have done that if she wouldn't have come across someone doing the same thing so many years ago. So you can't be what you can see, and this is why telling these stories matters. I think another great lesson in Sue's story is the power of showing and sharing with others your enthusiasm and passion for the things you love. Because when you do, people will remember you and associate you with these things. And this may prove very useful to bring opportunities that you're dreaming of. This is what happened when Sue, our teacher, suggested she could combine her love for the ocean, science knowledge, and great talent to communicate and paint into children's books. Or, more impressively, this amazing story when her former colleague saw a graphic recorder at a conference and asked Sue to do the same for her organization, even before Sue had even advertised a service. So... Tell me, what are the things you talk about that makes your voice sound like a smile? You can learn more about Sue by visiting her website. Just Google Dr. Sue Peelens. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it. Tune in for monthly episodes. You can follow multiple hats. Visit my website. That's angelicgreco.com.au or follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Just search for Angelic Greco. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to tell me about your story, leave me a message.